Book Twelve, Part Two of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrib. Book Twelve, A.D. Forty-eight to Fifty-four, Part Two. Claudius's son Britannicus, supplanted by Agrippina's son Nero. In the consulship of Caius Antistius and Marcus Suilius, the adoption of Domitius was hastened on by the influence of Pallas. Bound to Agrippina, first as the promoter of her marriage, then as her paramour, he still urged Claudius to think of the interests of the state, and to provide some support for the tender years of Britannicus. So, he said, it had been with the divine Augustus, whose stepsons, though he had grandsons to be his stay, had been promoted. Tiberius, too, though he had offspring of his own, had adopted Germanicus. Claudius would also do well to strengthen himself with a young prince who could share his cares with him. Overcome by these arguments, the emperor preferred Domitius to his own son, though he was but two years older, and made a speech in the senate, the same in substance as the representations of his freedmen. It was noted by learned men that no previous example of adoption into the patrician family of the Claudii was to be found, and that from Attus Clausus there had been one unbroken line. However, the emperor received formal thanks, and still more elaborate flattery was paid to Domitius. A law was passed adopting him into the Claudian family with the name of Nero. Agrippina, too, was honoured with the title of Augusta. When this had been done, there was not a person so void of pity as not to feel keen sorrow at the position of Britannicus. Gradually forsaken by the very slaves who waited on him, he turned into ridicule the ill-timed attentions of his stepmother, perceiving their insincerity. For he is said to have had by no means a dull understanding— and this is either a fact, or perhaps his perils won him sympathy, and so he possessed the credit of it, without actual evidence. Agrippina, to show her power even to the allied nations, procured the dispatch of a colony of veterans to the chief town of the Ubii, where she was born. The place was named after her. Agrippa, her grandfather, had, as it happened, received this tribe when they crossed the Rhine under our protection— during the same time there was a panic in Upper Germany through an eruption of plundering bands of Chatai. Thereupon Lucius Pomponius, who was in command, directed the Vangiones and Nemetes with the allied cavalry to anticipate the raid, and suddenly to fall upon them from every quarter while they were dispersed. The general's plan was backed up by the energy of the troops. These were divided into two columns, and those who marched to the left cut off the plunderers just on their return after a riotous enjoyment of their spoil when they were heavy with sleep. It added to the men's joy that they had rescued from slavery after forty years some survivors of the defeat of Varus. The column which took the right hand and the shorter route inflicted greater loss on the enemy who met them, and ventured on a battle. With much spoil and glory they returned to Mount Taunus, where Pomponius was waiting with the legions, to see whether the Chatai, in their eagerness for vengeance, would give him a chance of fighting. They, however, fearing to be hemmed in on one side by the Romans, on the other by the Cherusci, 
with whom they are perpetually at feud, sent envoys and hostages to Rome. To Pomponius was decreed the honour of a triumph, a mere fraction of his renown with the next generation, with whom his poems constitute his chief glory. At this same time Vanius, whom Drusus Caesar had made king of the Suevi, was driven from his kingdom. In the commencement of his reign he was renowned and popular with his countrymen, but subsequently, with long possession, he became a tyrant, and the enmity of neighbours, joined to intestine strife, was his ruin. Vibilius, king of the Hemunduri, and Vangio and Sido, sons of a sister of Vanius, led the movement. Claudius, though often entreated, declined to interpose by arms in the conflict of the barbarians, and simply promised Vanius a safe refuge in the event of his expulsion. He wrote instructions to Publius Atelius Hister, governor of Pannonia, that he was to have his legions, with some picked auxiliaries from the province itself, encamped on the river-bank, as a support to the conquered and a terror to the conqueror, who might otherwise, in the elation of success, disturb also the peace of our empire. For an immense host of Ligii, with other tribes, was advancing, attracted by the fame of the opulent realm which Vanius had enriched during thirty years of plunder and of tribute. Vanius's own native force was infantry, and his cavalry was from the Iazyges of Samatia, an army which was no match for his numerous enemy. Consequently he determined to maintain himself in fortified positions and protract the war. But the Iazyges, who could not endure a siege, dispersed themselves throughout the surrounding country and rendered an engagement inevitable, as the Ligii and Hermunduri had there rushed to the attack. So Vanius came down out of his fortresses, and though he was defeated in battle, notwithstanding his reverse, he won some credit by having fought with his own hand and received wounds on his breast. He then fled to the fleet which was awaiting him on the Danube, and was soon followed by his adherents, who received grants of land and were settled in Pannonia. Vangio and Sido divided his kingdom between them. They were admirably loyal to us, and among their subjects, whether the cause was in themselves or in the nature of despotism, much loved while seeking to acquire power, and yet more hated when they had acquired it. Meanwhile in Britain, Publius Ostorius, the proprietor, found himself confronted by disturbance. The enemy had burst into the territories of our allies with all the more fury, as they imagined that a new general would not march against them with winter beginning, and with an army of which he knew nothing. Ostorius, well aware that first events are those which produce alarm or confidence, by a rapid movement of his light cohorts, cut down all who opposed him, pursued those who fled, and lest they should rally, and so an unquiet and treacherous peace might allow no rest to the general and his troops, he prepared to disarm all whom he suspected, and to occupy with encampments the whole country to the Avon and Severn. The Iceni, a powerful tribe which war had not weakened, as they had voluntarily joined our alliance, were the first to resist. At their instigation the surrounding nations chose as a battlefield a spot walled in by a rude barrier, with a narrow approach impenetrable to cavalry. Through these defences the Roman general, though he had with him only the allied troops, without the strength of the legions, attempted to break, and having assigned their positions to his cohorts, he equipped even his cavalry for the work of infantry. 
Then, at a given signal, they forced the barrier, routing the enemy who were entangled in their own defences. The rebels, conscious of their guilt and finding escape barred, performed many noble feats. In this battle, Marius Ostorius, the general's son, won the reward for saving a citizen's life. The defeat of the Iceni quieted those who were hesitating between war and peace. Then the army was marched against the Kanji, their territory was ravaged, spoil taken everywhere without the enemy venturing on an engagement, or if they attempted to harass our march by stealthy attacks, their cunning was always punished. And now Ostorius had advanced within a little distance of the sea, facing the island Hibernia, when feuds broke out among the Brigantes and compelled the general's return, for it was his fixed purpose not to undertake any fresh enterprise till he had consolidated his previous successes. The Brigantes, indeed, when a few who were beginning hostilities had been slain and the rest pardoned, settled down quietly. But on the Silures, neither terror nor mercy had the least effect. They persisted in war and could be quelled only by legions encamped in their country. That this might be the more promptly effected, a colony of a strong body of veterans was established at Camelodunum on the conquered lands, as a defence against the rebels, and as a means of imbuing the allies with respect for our laws. The army then marched against the Silures, a naturally fierce people, and now full of confidence in the might of Caractacus, who by many an indecisive and many a successful battle had raised himself far above all the other generals of the Britons inferior in military strength, but deriving an advantage from the deceptiveness of the country, he at once shifted the war by a stratagem into the territory of the Ordovices, where, joined by all who dreaded peace with us, he resolved on a final struggle. He selected a position for the engagement, in which advance and retreat alike would be difficult for our men, and comparatively easy for his own, and then on some lofty hills, wherever their sides could be approached by a gentle slope, he piled up stones to serve as a rampart. A river, too, of varying depth was in his front, and his armed bands were drawn up before his defences. Then, too, the chieftains of the several tribes went from rank to rank, encouraging and confirming the spirit of their men by making light of their fears, kindling their hopes, and by every other warlike incitement. As for Caractacus, he flew hither and thither, protesting that that day and that battle would be the beginning of the recovery of their freedom, or of everlasting bondage. He appealed by name to their forefathers, who had driven back the dictator Caesar, by whose valour they were free from the Roman axe and tribute, and still preserved inviolate the persons of their wives and of their children. While he was thus speaking, the host shouted applause, Every warrior bound himself by his national oath not to shrink from weapons or wounds. Such enthusiasm confounded the Roman general. The river, too, in his face, the rampart they had added to it, the frowning hilltops, the stern resistance and masses of fighting men everywhere apparent, daunted him. But his soldiers insisted on battle, claiming that valour could overcome all things— and the prefects and tribunes with similar language stimulated the ardour of the troops. Ostorius, having ascertained by a survey the inaccessible and the assailable points of the position, led on his furious men, and crossed the river without difficulty. When he reached the barrier, as long as it was a fight with missiles, the wounds and the slaughter fell chiefly on our soldiers, 
but when he had formed the military testudo, and the rude, ill-compacted fence of stones was torn down, and it was an equal hand-to-hand engagement, the barbarians retired to the heights. Yet even there both light and heavy-armed soldiers rushed to the attack. The first harassed the foe with missiles, while the latter closed with them, and the opposing ranks of the Britons were broken, destitute as they were of the defence of breastplates or helmets. When they faced the auxiliaries they were felled by the swords and javelins of our legionaries. If they wheeled round, they were again met by the sabres and spears of the auxiliaries. It was a glorious victory. The wife and daughter of Caractacus were captured, and his brothers, too, were admitted to surrender. There is seldom safety for the unfortunate, and Caractacus, seeking the protection of Cartis Mandua, queen of the Brigantes, was put in chains and delivered up to the conquerors, nine years after the beginning of the war in Britain. His fame had spread thence and travelled to the neighbouring islands and provinces, and was actually celebrated in Italy. All were eager to see the great man who for so many years had defied our power. Even at Rome the name of Caractacus was no obscure one, and the emperor, while he exalted his own glory, enhanced the renown of the vanquished. The people were summoned as to a grand spectacle. The praetorian cohorts were drawn up under arms in the plain in front of their camp. Then came a procession of the royal vassals, and the ornaments and neck-chains and the spoils which the king had won in wars with other tribes were displayed. Next were to be seen his brothers, his wife and daughter, last of all Caractacus himself. All the rest stooped in their fear to abject supplication, not so the king, who neither by humble look nor speech sought compassion. When he was set before the emperor's tribunal, he spoke as follows. Had my moderation in prosperity been equal to my noble birth and fortune, I should have entered this city as your friend rather than as your captive, and you would not have disdained to receive, under a treaty of peace, a king descended from illustrious ancestors and ruling many nations. My present lot is as glorious to you as it is degrading to myself. I had men and horses, arms and wealth. What wonder if I parted with them reluctantly? If you Romans choose to lord it over the world, does it follow that the world is to accept slavery? Were I to have been at once delivered up as prisoner, neither my fall nor your triumph would have become famous. My punishment would be followed by oblivion, whereas if you save my life, I shall be an everlasting memorial of your clemency." Upon this the emperor granted pardon to Caractacus, to his wife, and to his brothers. Released from their bonds, they did homage also to Agrippina, who sat near, conspicuous on another throne, in the same language of praise and gratitude. It was indeed a novelty, quite alien to ancient manners, for a woman to sit in front of Roman standards. In fact, Agrippina boasted that she was herself a partner in the empire which her ancestors had won. The Senate was then assembled, and speeches were delivered, full of pompous eulogy on the capture of Caractacus. It was as glorious, they said, as the display of Syphax by Scipio, or of Perses by Lucius Paulus, or indeed of any captive prince by any of our generals to the people of Rome. Triumphal distinctions were voted to Ostorius, who thus far had been successful, but soon afterwards met with reverses, 
either because when Caractacus was out of the way our discipline was relaxed under an impression that the war was ended, or because the enemy, out of compassion for so great a king, was more ardent in his thirst for vengeance. Instantly they rushed from all parts on the camp prefect, and legionary cohorts left to establish fortified positions among the silures, and had not speedy succour arrived from towns and fortresses in the neighbourhood, our forces would then have been totally destroyed. Even as it was, the camp prefect, with eight centurions and the bravest of the soldiers, were slain, and shortly afterwards a foraging party of our men, with some cavalry squadrons sent to their support, was utterly routed. Ostorius then deployed his light cohorts, but even thus he did not stop the flight till our legions sustained the brunt of the battle. Their strength equalised the conflict, which after a while was in our favour. The enemy fled with trifling loss as the day was on the decline. Now began a series of skirmishes, for the most part like raids in woods and morasses, with encounters due to chance or to courage, to mere heedlessness or to calculation, to fury or to lust of plunder, under directions from the officers or sometimes even without their knowledge. Conspicuous above all in stubborn resistance were the silures, whose rage was fired by words rumoured to have been spoken by the Roman general, to the effect that as the Sugambri had been formally destroyed or transplanted into Gaul, so the name of the silures ought to be blotted out. Accordingly they cut off two of our auxiliary cohorts, the rapacity of whose officers let them make incautious forays, and by liberal gifts of spoil and prisoners to the other tribes, they were luring them too into revolt, when Ostorius, worn out by the burden of his anxieties, died, to the joy of the enemy, who thought that a campaign at least, though not a single battle, had proved fatal to a general whom none could despise. The emperor, on hearing of the death of his representative, appointed Aulus Didius in his place, that the province might not be left without a governor. Didius, though he quickly arrived, found matters far from prosperous, for the legion under the command of Manlius Valens had meanwhile been defeated, and the disaster had been exaggerated by the enemy to alarm the new general, while he again magnified it that he might win the more glory by quelling the movement, or have a fairer excuse if it lasted. This loss, too, had been inflicted on us by the Silures, and they were scouring the country far and wide, till Didius hurried up and dispersed them. After the capture of Caractacus, Venutius of the Brigantes, as I have already mentioned, was preeminent in military skill. He had long been loyal to Rome, and had been defended by our arms, while he was united in marriage to the Queen Catis Mandua. Subsequently a quarrel broke out between them, followed instantly by war, and he then assumed a hostile attitude also towards us. At first, however, they simply fought against each other, and Catis Mandua, by cunning stratagems, captured the brothers and kinsfolk of Venutius. This enraged the enemy, who was stung with shame at the prospect of falling under the dominion of a woman. The flower of their youth, picked out for war, invaded her kingdom. This we had foreseen, some cohorts were sent to her aid, and a sharp contest followed, which was at first doubtful, but had a satisfactory termination. The legion under the command of Caesius Nasica fought with the similar result. For Didius, burdened with years and covered with honours, 
was content with acting through his officers and merely holding back the enemy. These transactions, though occurring under two proprietors and occupying several years, I have closely connected, lest, if related separately, they might be less easily remembered. I now return to the chronological order. In the fifth consulship of Tiberius Claudius, with Sextius Cornelius Orphitus for his colleague, Nero was prematurely invested with the dress of manhood, that he might be thought qualified for political life. The emperor willingly complied with the flatteries of the senate who wished Nero to enter on the consulship in his twentieth year, and meanwhile, as consul-elect, to have proconsular authority beyond the limits of the capital, with the title of Prince of the Youth of Rome. A donative was also given to the soldiery in Nero's name, and presents to the city populace. At the games, too, of the circus, which were then being celebrated to win for him popular favour, Britannicus wore the dress of boyhood, Nero the triumphal robe, as they rode in the procession. The people would thus behold the one with the decorations of a general, the other in a boy's habit, and would accordingly anticipate their respective destinies. At the same time, those of the centurions and tribunes who pitied the lot of Britannicus were removed, some on false pretexts, others by way of a seeming compliment. Even of the freedmen, all who were of incorruptible fidelity were discarded on the following provocation. Once, when they met, Nero greeted Britannicus by that name, and was greeted in return as Domitius. Agrippina reported this to her husband, with bitter complaint, as the beginning of a quarrel, as implying, in fact, contempt of Nero's adoption, and a cancelling at home of the Senate's decree and the people's vote. She said, too, that, if the perversity of such malignant suggestions were not checked, it would issue in the ruin of the state. Claudius, enraged by what he took as a grave charge, punished with banishment or death, all his son's best instructors, and set persons appointed by his stepmother to have the care of him. Still Agrippina did not yet dare to attempt her greatest scheme, unless Lucius Gator and Rufius Crispinus were removed from the command of the Praetorian cohorts, for she thought that they cherished Messalina's memory and were devoted to her children. Accordingly, as the emperor's wife persistently affirmed that faction was rife among these cohorts, through the rivalry of the two officers, and that there would be stricter discipline under one commander, the appointment was transferred to Burrus Afranius, who had a brilliant reputation as a soldier, but knew well to whose wish he owed his promotion. Agrippina, too, continued to exalt her own dignity. She would enter the capital in a chariot, a practice which, being allowed of old only to the priests and sacred images, increased the popular reverence for a woman who, up to this time, was the only recorded instance of one who, an emperor's daughter, was sister, wife, and mother of a sovereign. Meanwhile her foremost champion, Vitellius, in the full tide of his power and in extreme age, so uncertain are the fortunes of the great, was attacked by an accusation of which Junius Lupus, a senator, was the author. He was charged with treason and designs on the throne. The emperor would have lent a ready ear, had not Agrippina, by threats rather than entreaties, induced him to sentence the accuser to outlawry. This was all that Vitellius desired. Several prodigies occurred in that year. 
birds of evil omen perched on the capital, houses were thrown down by frequent shocks of earthquake, and as the panic spread all the weak were trodden down in the hurry and confusion of the crowd. Scanty crops, too, and consequent famine, were regarded as token of calamity. Nor were there merely whispered complaints. While Claudius was administering justice, the populace crowded round him with a boisterous clamour, and drove him to a corner of the forum, where they violently pressed on him till he broke through the furious mob with a body of soldiers. It was ascertained that Rome had provisions for no more than fifteen days, and it was through the signal bounty of heaven and the mildness of the winter that its desperate plight was relieved. And yet in past days Italy used to send supplies for the legions into distant provinces, and even now it is not a barren soil which causes distress. But we prefer to cultivate Africa and Egypt, and trust the life of the Roman people to ships and all their risks. End of Book Twelve, Part Two